It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, May 13th, 2015, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show where pride is a sin, but Kitty Pride is one of our favorite mutants. Today on the show, The Avengers. We talk about the new movie, the comic series that it comes from, and the ways in which an atheist manages to point to some surprisingly Christian truths. We may not have James Spader's voice, but we definitely have faces for radio. We'll talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, plus recommendations, this or that, and much more. I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I am Rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm from Christ Church, Cooperstown, New York. And that's it. It's just the two of us today. Father Kyle uh, had some stuff come up and wasn't able to be with us today. So this is our perfect opportunity to talk about him. You know, talk about how he dresses, uh, what he does with his hair, you know, those kind of things. So let's start out with some recommendations. If you don't mind, I'm going to go first today, uh, Father Matt. Uh, my recommendation this time is a relatively new comic... Uh, ongoing series from Marvel called Silk. Silk is the story of a young woman named Cindy Moon. She's a Korean-American. She has some of the same powers as Spider-Man has because the same spider that bit Peter Parker actually bit her as well. So some of those same sort of radioactive spider powers have come to her, especially her her spider sense, which she calls a silk sense, um, which is actually a lot stronger for her even than it is for Spider-Man. The problem for Silk is that she couldn't control her powers. They came on so strongly and, and, and were kind of so out of control that she just, it, it was impossible. She didn't know what to do with them. So a man named Ezekiel comes to try to help her, and uh, over a couple of years, uh, that doesn't work out, and so eventually she's locked up by Ezekiel, and she stays locked up for ten years. Uh, now, her coming out of this ten-year compound is a big part of the crossover event that just happened in Marvel called Spider-Verse where they went all over the place with all these different books and doing all these different storylines. So at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, well, this does not sound like a, a book I want to jump into if I'm, if I'm not already into it because there's so many interlocking stories and lines. In fact, the opposite is the case. Uh, because Silk is such a new hero, she's got a new set of, of, of stuff, so she doesn't have this tremendously long back history. Uh, and the only thing you really need to know in order to get into the, the story that, that's just started is that she has these spider powers and that she spent 10 years locked up in a box and is now trying to figure out how to be a person in the world again, let alone a crime fighter. And uh, it's just, it's a really accessible story. And I say that because I didn't read most of the Spider-Verse stuff, uh, but I found it very easy to jump into. She's a, she's a compelling character. Uh, the, the book is written by Robbie Thompson and drawn by Stacy Lee. And I don't know of anything else by either one of them. They may have done some other stuff. 
but they do a really good job. The art's really, really nice. And it's, it's an interesting story because what's going on in, in the book at this point is that when she came up out of the bunker, she discovered that her family, her parents and, and sibling, have disappeared. She doesn't know where they've gone. They've, there's not a trace of them left. It's as if they never existed at all. And so the, the kind of thread that's ongoing through these issues is that she is, she's fighting crime. She's decided to devote her powers to fighting crime. But she's also trying to figure out what happened to my family. Where did they go? And so they unravel that mystery a little bit at a time while at the same time she's learning how to fight crime and at the same time she's learning how to interact with people and, uh, and, and learn how to have interpersonal relationships. You know, I just, I find this kind of thing compelling because it is so hard to get into characters who've been around for ages and ages with so much backstory. This, this book, there are four issues out, I believe, or three issues out. I think the fourth one is coming out today. Um, so it'd be very easy for somebody to jump on. There's not a trade yet, but you can probably find them going back to issue one at your local comic store or if you wanted to jump on and grab a couple of the digital issues from marvel.com. Great book. I hope a lot of people check it out. It seems to be doing pretty well in sales so far. So and so my recommendation uh, this week is a recent graphic novel uh, published by Fantagraphics called Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen. And, and the writer and the artist is Dylan Horrocks. I, I think that's how you say his name. And so the the book starts off with the um, an introduction to the protagonist, and it says Sam Zabel is a cartoonist, or so he says. Truth be told, Sam hasn't drawn a comic in years, and so so given this the main character as as a comic book artist, one can't help but uh, wonder just how autobiographical the book is. Sam also has achieved some critical success with uh, with the work that he did in the past, and since then he hasn't really done it much uh, original. Sam is struggling with serious creative block and a lack of motivation, and he spends his days uh, looking at these kind of neoclassical romantic paintings depicting uh, a mythical paradise many of them depicting beautiful naked nymphs and fairies. And he longs to escape the doldrum of his everyday life. Sam is happily married to a loving wife. They have two somewhat messy and rambunctious children whom he obviously cares a great deal for. And yet, according to his therapist, he's suffering from a condition called anhedonia, uh, which is basically the inability to get pleasure or satisfaction out of life and this has been going on for six years sam pays the bills by working for a mainstream comic book company uh, writing a superhero book called lady knight the character has been revamped over and over again and she does and he, he doesn't really feel uh, a, a great connection to the current state of the character which is ultra-violent and overly sexed. Interestingly enough, Dylan uh, Horrocks worked for DC uh, for a period between 
uh, his two books and he wrote Batgirl. And so I don't know if this is a commentary on what he thought about his work on Batgirl or what. Mm. Um, but in, in the course of the story, uh, Sam finds himself magically transported into an old comic book he is reading due to the power of uh, a magic pen that the artist used to draw it. It's a science fiction uh, Martian world that seems like an homage to John Carter of Mars. It is also similar to the mythical uh, paradise in the paintings that he's so taken with. For instance, upon entering the world, he's greeted as a god and worshipped by a harem of beautiful, green-skinned, naked Martian girls who want to be his wives. What, what kind of book is this that you're recommending here, Father? <laughs> well, that, this it is where I feel the quali uh, qualification is necessary. Uh, the book is definitely for adults, um, and it contains uh, you know, a lot of depiction and nudity and some graphic sexuality. But I don't think it's it gratuitous, however. Uh, one of the main themes the book explores is escapism fantasy, desire, and, and, and wish fulfillment. So Sam and the other characters, such as the aspiring young cartoonist Alice, who joins him, travel through this fantasy world where they are constantly being invited to indulge in, in, in their sexual desires. As a married man, Sam wrestles with this quite a bit. Um, he loves his wife and he wants to be faithful. But then at the same time, he thinks, you know, this isn't real. This is a fantasy world. You know, what could it hurt? So throughout the story, uh, he, he, the author calls our attention to the way that fa the fantasy worlds that we create uh, in comic books affect the lives of real people. Uh, for instance, it can, can and often does create an environment of objectification for women. And Sam clearly doesn't seem immune to this. And uh, he, I mean, even fantasizing about um, the superhero book that he writes, uh, Lady Midnight. The other, the female character, Alice, illustrates an interesting way of navigating the problem. She says that as a female comic book fan, she's often subject to the fantasy world of men. And uh, as a reader, however, she has a certain power herself. She has the power to creatively reinterpret the stories she reads in ways that are empowering. Um, and so Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen uh, certainly raises a lot of really fascinating questions. It, it, it takes a critical look at sort of the comic book industry and, and the sorts of things we do with it. And, but it's also beautifully well-crafted and just a whole lot of fun. So I... Uh, I definitely recommend that you check it out. Well, our main discussion today is going to be on the Avengers. This is, of course, coming out of the release of Avengers Age of Ultron in theaters a couple of weeks ago. This is the second in the Avengers series of movies. It's the 13th in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which now comprises a lot of properties and, and a lot of interlocking stories. It is written and directed by Joss Whedon, who is famous for a number of, of television shows and, and movies and in the sci-fi geek kind of world. Um, he also wrote and directed the first Avengers movie. 
So let's just start out with uh, geeking out a little bit about the movie. I know we both have seen it. Uh, Father Matt, what did you think of it? Uh, well, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was an exciting movie. I thought it was a worthy sequel to the first Avengers movie. It kind of pushes the buttons of the comic book geek in all the right places. I mean, to see some of the new characters pop up. Um, yeah. I, I really did enjoy it a lot. I, I wouldn't say it's the greatest movie ever. You know, it's not Shakespeare or anything, but... Uh, yeah. But I, I do think that it was it was a lot of fun. And two things that I like about it that I don't know that I've heard anybody else comment on too much. First of all, I'm not going to spoil it, but I would say this was my favorite Stan Lee cameo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of, you know, long-time watchers of these things know that Stan Lee, uh, the, the great uh, comic icon and creator of most of these Marvel characters, uh, he does a cameo in just about every Marvel film or television show. Sometimes it's only a second or two. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and my wife and I went and saw this together, and, and we were talking about this afterwards, that one of the really, one of the things that I was really um, happy about in this film, they depict a really wonderful friendship between Black Widow and Hawkeye. Oh, yeah. And it I, now, I haven't seen a couple of these films at this point. I haven't seen Captain America Winter Soldier. So I don't know if there's more in that. But it, it was just, it was nice to see a male-female friendship on screen that was not somehow a cover for some kind of sexual tension, you know? <laughs> it wasn't, uh, oh, they, they want to be lovers, but they can't be, or, oh, they've got this other thing going on. You know, they, they have their own sort of romantic worlds, um, but they're, they're just, they're friends. They're good friends with one another. They're very close friends, but they're not romantically entangled. And it, it's nice to see that because, you know, it's 2015, and surprise, surprise, that actually happens from, from time to time, that men and women become friends with each other without ulterior motives. So, mm -hmm. there we are. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think both Black Widow's character and uh, Hawkeye's character are fleshed out in, in significant ways in, in this movie. Yes. Um, that, that, that are refreshing. They, they, they seem a bit more complex uh, as characters. So I've never been a big reader of Avengers. I, I read it a little bit as a kid, but uh, the one character who I read a lot of when I was a kid would be Iron Man. I had, I had a fair number of issues of Iron Man because I thought Iron Man looked really cool, you know? Um, especially the red and silver suit. I thought that was really cool looking. But, oh yeah. See, we were Iron Man fans at the same time. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but so you know, I don't know if this father, if this would be true for you. But if I were to go back in time and to tell young comic book nerd Jonathan that someday Iron Man will be a household name, that people all over the country will know who Iron Man is, I think he would be very surprised because. 
you know, he, Iron Man wasn't exactly a top pro, uh, a top property for Marvel. Um, for a lot of those years, he was just kind of this weird character who was in the Avengers. Uh, but you know, they hadn't been making a lot of uh, cartoons and merchandise about him. It's really kind of extraordinary how the the creation of this Marvel Cinematic Universe, the films they've done, and um, the way that Robert Downey Jr. has played him has suddenly made him this, you know, we can't even imagine Marvel comics or, or you know, imagine the movies without Iron Man. No, well, yes, the Iron Man movie might be, uh, out of the Marvel movies, I, it might be my favorite. I mean, because it, it, uh, Robert Downey Jr., yeah, I mean, he really brings the character to life. Um, and, and Iron Man, yeah, he wasn't exactly as obscure as Hawkeye, but but no, he wasn't true. he wasn't he wasn't Spider Man or the Fantastic Four. I mean, he had his own cartoon back in the '60s, um, and and there there was a cartoon for a while in the '90s, I think it was. But but he was always you know not not quite on the top tier kind of comic book characters mm -hmm. um, he was always a, a household name in my house well there you, there you go <laughs> in my house as well yeah i i used to read the avengers um kind of sporadically as a kid as well but i was sort of pretty steady reader of the west coast avengers for a while and the west coast avengers a lot of the characters that make up that team are the ones that um, that are introduced in, 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 in this film and that uh, are on the horizon as being the new uh, Avengers. So there's Ant-Man and the Wasp, there's the Vision and Scarlet Witch, there's Iron Man and Hawkeye, um, and the Black Widow, yes. I think, was, was in the West Coast of Avengers. But, yes. uh, so, and John Byrne did the artwork for a while, and it was just a really cool book. And so that's kind of my main association with the Avengers. And they found a very creative way of getting um, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch into the story in this film without making reference to Marvel properties that Marvel no longer has the rights to bring up. Because, <laughs> right. of course, the X-Men are uh, one of the properties that's been... Uh, handed over, I guess Sony, does Sony have them, or somebody else, maybe it's Fox that has them, what but, them? Uh, you know, the X-Men films, even though they're from Marvel characters, are not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and in fact, the Marvel Cinematic Universe does not have the rights to use the word mutant, so yeah. um, they can't, uh, you know, so it's, they, they sort of do this really clever kind of dancing around uh, what it is that gives these these two people their their powers. Um, Quicksilver even shows up in the, I believe in the last X-Men film, Quicksilver is yeah. there. Um, yeah. So there we are. But I, I was happy to see them, especially Scarlet Witch. I always thought she was a cool character. And so. they do her in, in a very kind of, she's, she's pretty cool in this movie. She definitely does some awesome stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that yeah. was fun to watch. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's our geeking out. Let me ask you about if you see any kind of themes in this film that have some resonance to uh, the Christian story or to God or to any of that kind of stuff. 
Um, I want to ask you about it because I, I definitely see some things here that point in that direction. And I often do with Joss Whedon, which is really interesting because Joss Whedon is, is an atheist. He's uh, said that numerous times. And yet, I have to say, Whedon hits on certain themes and certain connections back to faith and, and, and even to scripture in some ways better than a lot of Christians do, uh, which is always extraordinary to me. I mean, I think, um, for instance, his depiction of Shepherd Book in the Firefly series is probably the most sympathetic depiction of a clergy person that I've seen on film or in television in modern times. Uh, anyway, with all of that said, do you see anything, or did you see anything in this film that you thought, you know, I can see God getting his, his nose in the door here. Yeah, I mean, sometimes quite explicitly. So the character Ultron, um, who talks a mile a minute as James Spader, which is a little disorienting, um, <laughs> coming from like this robotic character in James Spader's voice. Um, oh, but James but, uh, Spader's voice is, is so just generally creepy anyway, you know? Yeah. I kept yeah. waiting for him to, to cross-examine me, you know? <laughs> yeah, because he, he's always the lawyer character. So he talks like a mile a minute, as James Spader does. And um, but and he's, he's chock full of, like, scriptural quotations. His prime directive in his creation was to work for the common good and to achieve uh, peace in our time. And in his sort of twisted way, he distorts that into a, a kind of a crusade against the human race. That he says the human race is the biggest threat to life on Earth. And, and so he quotes uh, scripture and evokes God in, in, in sort of justification for his reasoning. Like he says... Whenever the earth settles, God throws a rock at it. He even uh, looks back to the biblical story of Noah and the flood as, as a sort of cleansing of the earth of wickedness and, and conceives of his dastardly plan in, in, in similar terms um, uh, of cleansing the earth of the, the plague of the human race, which um, he, he feels is, is just reached a, a scale of wickedness too long too much to tolerate and so his his base of operation is even in an old abandoned church in, in in the east at one point he even throws out the the line on this rock i will build my church ultron is kind of a twisted religious zealot in some respects whedon sets ultron up to be this this kind of a figure that you're talking about um, he is kind of a reverse Christ figure. Ultron sees the sin of the world and decides that the best way to get rid of the sin of the world is to kill all the sinners. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Jesus sees the sin of the world and decides the best way to get rid of it is to offer himself, to sacrifice himself. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is this is a theme that comes up in other places in what Joss Whedon has done too, thinking of, for instance, Serenity, 
which is another film where the, the problem is that you have characters who think that they can make the world better by basically forcing a kind of purity onto people. And, uh, you know, they, I, I believe that's even a line in that movie in Serenity, where he says they think we can, they can make human beings better. What that amounts to really is an indictment of the way in which human beings uh, in our sinfulness attach ourselves to the idea that we somehow can legislate perfection. I mean, this is, this is a kind of escapism, an escape from God, that if, if only we could set the rules up just so uh, we could eliminate all of these pesky people with their pesky problems. But of course, it never works, because the problem is not just that people do the, do the darndest things, it's that people themselves are, are broken from the inside out. And I think that Whedon's work in, in other places and in this film helps to illustrate and point to why that doesn't work. He's diagnosing the problem very well. I think where the difficulty comes in is where do you balance that out? Where is the salvation to come from? And in a lot of heroic stories, whether we're talking about superhero stories or other kinds of stories, there is often a heroic figure who is a sacrificial figure um, who essentially becomes like the Christ figure in the story. Sometimes there's more than one of them. But there's some way in which personal sacrifice ends up being the, the source of redemption. And I can see little pieces of that in this film. You see some of it in, for instance, the way that the Hulk, um, there is a, a kind of a burgeoning possibility of relationship between uh, Bruce Banner and Black Widow. He, he, does, he has to do some sacrificial things for her sake. So there's, there's you know, you kind of see it in miniature. But I don't know. I mean, I'll ask you if you do. You see any kind of sacrificial figure here, or or, or somebody who can fulfill that kind of heroic role, um, or are we just all too jaded at this point to believe there could be a hero with that pure motive? Well, I mean, I think the Avengers themselves, um, you know, in the film, are 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 the heroic figures that, like, you know, thank. Thank God that they're that they're there to sort of fight off Ultron. I mean, they but at the same time they kind of have to fight off the demons in themselves, um, mm -hmm. which is interesting in, in itself. I think Whedon plays with this idea of heroism and self-sacrifice and hope, sort of like a hope against hope in the film. I, I read an interview with him in, in Entertainment Weekly, and he says some interesting things in light of the film. He says, I think that the world is largely awful and getting worse, and eventually the human race will die, and it will be our own fault. Mm -hmm. um, so sounding a bit like Ultron there. <laughs> um, and he says... I, I can't believe anybody thinks we're actually going to make it before we destroy the planet. 
I honestly think it's inevitable. And and this is this is really striking. He says, "I have no hope." Yeah. Um, and, but then later on, he says, um, "He says I write things where people will lay down their lives for each other." He's like, even though I I don't see that in the world, he says, and and on a personal level, I know many wonderful people who are spending their lives trying to help others, who are just decent and kind. I have friends who are extraordinary. I love my family. But on a macro level, I don't see that in the world. So I have a need to create it. Hopefully that need gets translated into somebody relating to it and feeling whole. Because if we take that away, then I'm definitely right. I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it. It's that line from The Lord of the Rings. I give hope to men. I keep none for myself. They say it in Elvis, so it sounds super cool. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that fascinating? That is really um, fascinating. It really is because that, I mean, he really gets at the problem, right? I mean, the problem is, I mean, this is why I say he's fantastic at diagnosing the difficulty, but if you don't have... Um, if you don't have a savior, you know, if you don't have a redeemer to point to, then that story is just bleak and hopeless. Um, and what a lot of literature and a lot of storytelling has been through the ages has been our deep desire and our deep need to see a savior who has been promised to us, right? I mean, we've been promised a savior from the beginning. The first promise that Christ is going to rescue us from ourselves comes right in Genesis 3. It's right after the fall that, uh, you know, that God says that uh, the seed of the woman will, uh, will come, and, uh, which, is, which is ultimately a reference to Christ himself. And I always think about this, you know, I think about Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit uh, in his autobiography, and they, they dramatized this in the, in the movie Shadowlands, where his problem, even after he became a theist, you know, because he had been an atheist, but after he became a theist, his problem was still trying to, you know, whether or not he was going to believe in the Christian faith or the Christian story, and part of what held him back was that he was looking at all of these myths and other stories through time and saying, well, this story has a, a savior figure, this story has somebody who dies and rises again, and so on and so forth. And, you know, and thinking to himself, well, then how can I, how can I believe that this story about Jesus is true? Wouldn't, couldn't it just be another one of those? And... Of course, the conclusion that he comes to is, no, it's not just another one of those. But what he begins to realize is that that doesn't mean that all the other stories are false to their core, but rather that our desire as human beings to see the fulfillment of the promise is so great that all of these other stories have poured out of us because of our need for the true story that comes out in Jesus. And so they all, they all inevitably, you know, however imperfectly, however um, 
problematically in some ways, they all inevitably lead back to Jesus in the end. And I think that's true with, with all great storytelling even now. And so, you know, even though a guy like, like Joss Whedon, you know, would say, well, I don't believe, and he would be very upfront about that, very honestly so, right? Um, and yet at the same time, when he's creating stories, that, you know, there's this, this recourse back to um, wanting to create a heroic figure, to create a sacrificial figure, and all of those sorts of things, you know, there's still pointers in there that, that point back to Christ. Oh, absolutely. I mean, with, with the climax of the film, without giving too much away, there, there's the sort of Christ figure in the film that many people point to um, as being the most obvious. Um, it's interesting though both Ultron and this this Christ figure uh, I mean they're they're the product of human ingenuity and, and, and so um, Father Baron uh, of Word on Fire has, has been sort of um, he, he wrote an article last week looking at the movie and he sees a lot of um, Nietzsche in the film especially this idea of this sort of perpetual return, this uh, uh, you know the the cycle of uh, uh, of the world that everything sort of it's just spinning on an ever continuing circle. And there's definitely there is that in the film that like sort of the old Norris idea that like it's hopeless, but we're gonna go down fighting. <laughs> um, I mean, and several of the characters sort of make similar statements to that the hope seems to be like well in, in a world without hope we have to kind of seize the reins and make our own home and i think that's sort of the the, the nietzschean philosophy that father baron is seeing in the movie but even even while doing that he manages to to create um a pretty powerful christ figure <laughs> Who, who is the most noble of, of the characters. Um, I would say more than one. I mean, there's more than one character here that is willing to give themselves for the sake of others and in extraordinary ways. And, I, you know, I can see from what you're describing as Father Baron's point, I mean, I can see that. And, of course, that that is kind of the atheist, humanistic... Uh, recourse, right? I mean, because it's the only recourse in a world which has no purpose and in which everything is kind of bleak and in which there are no real heroes, your only hope is to be able to create your own situation and to create your own, you know, to be a hero in, in your own way. Mm -hmm. Sounds like the police are after me there. Um, they finally figured yeah. out where I am, and but anyway, and and so I can so I can see that I can see that point that these characters are are trying to create, you know, basically try to be the Nietzschean supermen, right? Try to create a different kind of thing. The problem, though, with that analysis is once they start sacrificing themselves for the sake of others the whole thing collapses on itself because Nietzsche's Superman, 
the idea of the sort of perfectly atheistic humanistic world where we all kind of rise above it, there's no self-sacrifice in it the only purpose for sacrifice that that can be found in that kind of world is like a purely biological one right like a mother might sacrifice herself for the sake of her child because so strong is our biological urge to reproduce and to have you know the next generation come along but there's no explanation at all for why would somebody sacrifice themselves for a stranger or even for people who are kind of terrible you know i mean there are a lot of terrible people in the world that these superheroes are willing to be bloodied up for yeah so like yeah. what's the motivation for that if not some deep desire within even those who who say flat out we don't believe some deep desire uh for a real true sacrificial savior yeah i, I mean i i think that's a powerful point and, and it, it's also to be said i mean he also in in the character of ultron um is very much critiquing the idea of kind of trying to seize the reins and and you know bring uh, redemption to the world ourselves mm -hmm. um, yes I mean uh, uh, um, so I mean he seems very he seems very kind of conscious of that you know uh, critical the sort of utopian impulse or, or um, right you know the uh, Ultron is is um, he is a man-made god that that leads the world in an awful um, direction I, I don't know um, it seems like Whedon is trying to say well if we've created this mess of the deity that has justified so much evil what we really need to do is create um, a more just and loving God who, who, who's on the side of human beings and, and although there's no hope we could sort of you know, fashion hope for ourselves. Uh, now, I, I want to say we don't we don't need to fashion a, a god for ourselves. Um, and and in in doing so, we're more likely, e even with altruistic mo motives, to create an Ultron. <laughs> um, yeah, and I that, don't I don't know that I agree that that that's what Whedon is doing. Um, I I think that. Um, I think you're right when you say that Ultron is a critique of that idea yeah. that we can become gods or that, that that's the best thing, that we should try to purify the world through our own efforts. Um, I think that Whedon is actually working on a much more realistic and much smaller canvas than that when he is planting in us the idea that it's possible for heroism to exist because the heroes that that he's working with are all flawed characters it's not like it's not like he's setting any of these characters up even the even the ones that are the most quote-unquote christ-like they're sort of question marks <laughs> about uh, what are they going to do and how is it going to work and is this really you know such a good idea to put our trust in this person and and then the person himself turns around and says, well, I have no idea. It may not be a good idea to trust me, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't know that he's really trying to set up new new gods and better gods. 
Um, but I think that almost, and from the interview that you read, almost in spite of himself, I think that what Whedon is doing is creating a hope for heroism to exist amongst human beings in spite of our flaws. So not a, you know, not a, a new God that's made by human hands, but a true heroism that somehow comes pouring forth out of us despite our brokenness. And I think that the problem with that, I, there's no problem with that idea. I actually think that that's a wonderful idea, but the problem is where does that heroism come from? And for us as Christians, you know, we would say, well, it comes from the reality of who God is and the fact that, that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, I, I wouldn't want to impose that on, on Whedon. You know, he can, I'm sure he can speak for himself, and I want to be, I want to be completely fair to that position, and especially if, if we have any atheist uh, listeners. You know, please know, none of this conversation is meant to, um, to mock you in any way. Um, it's, it's really just, from our perspective, trying to understand, you know, is there something bigger that this can point to than itself? Mm. This has been a really good conversation, but now it's time for a little something that we call This or That. This or that, this or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Batman or Iron Man? This or that. Spider-Man or Superman? This or that. Boxes or briefs? This or that. DVD or VHS? This or that. Dungeons or Dragons? This and that. Moses or Elijah? This or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Huh? Okay, Father Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. Now, it's, it's just you and me today, so you, you get to answer all of these. <laughs> So this okay. is this is a very exciting moment. What people are going to think of you from now on may may hang in the balance here. The the four people okay. who listen this far into the program, this is what they're going to think of you based on. Are right, you ready? Yes. First one, Indian food or Chinese food? Um, uh, a Chinese food. Firefly. Or Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Well, I've seen Firefly, but I, I haven't seen much more of, uh, than a few episodes of Buffy, so I'm going to have to say Firefly. That is the correct answer. Now, <laughs> now we're going to have Buffy fans writing in. Um, Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> mashed potatoes or sweet potatoes? Uh, sweet potatoes. Air hockey or ping pong? Oh, um, I'm, I'm not very good at either, but <laughs> ping pong. Ping pong. I, I studied for a while at, at, at Biblical Theological Seminary, and they had um, a ping pong table in, like, their lounge. Mm -hmm. And a lot of um, my fellow students at, at, at Biblical were, were Koreans, and there was some epic ping pong matches in, in, in the lounge at Biblical. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go with ping pong. Well, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds good. My wife and I used to, um, we used to live in this apartment complex that had, before we had children, when we were able to, you know, do things. Um, we, we lived in this, 
<laughs> we lived in this apartment complex that had a, a tennis court. And we thought, that oh, this is so great. We should go down and, and make use of the tennis court, you know. Um, like we were uh, really uh, important people or something. So we, so we got these old rackets from uh, Goodwill or something and got a tennis ball and went down there. But then we realized neither one of us actually knew how to play tennis. And so what we basically ended up doing was we would play giant ping pong. We would play <laughs> ping pong on a yeah. tennis court. And, uh, and it works, you know. It works, it works just fine. So there you go. All right. I believe Bob Dylan uh, one time in, in concert had as a bit of stage chatter in between songs and apropos of nothing said, uh, I had a woman once. She was a tennis player. She left me. Love meant nothing to her. So, there you are. <laughs> okay, yeah, now, now the, these first few have been nice, Father Matt, but here's where it gets real, okay? All right. Here's where the heavy questions start to come. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. Okay, here we go. Sinbad the Sailor or Sinbad the Comedian? Oh, um, Sinbad the Comedian. Yeah, I, I liked his, like, kind of uh, MC Hammer kind of get-up that he used to wear. <laughs> the, with the with the rip rappers, his pants that were big for, like, a minute in the 90s. That's true, although I would say, you know, if you're if you get into a sword fight... Having Sinbad the Sailor by your side probably going to work out better for you than Sinbad the Comedian. Well, I I prefer, to, instead of violence, to diffuse the situation with humor. You know, I, I didn't realize this till just this moment, but I seem to be trying to work an 80s stand-up comic into just about every episode of this podcast. <laughs> Have you noticed that? We've had Bobcat Goldthwait, we've had uh, Paul Reiser, and now here's Sinbad. Hmm. hmm. What does that say about me? I don't know. Your agenda, your '80s agenda. That's right, my '80s <laughs> agenda. All right. The, the next, the next one pertains to what would be the best way to pick the next president of the United States. Uh, as as you know, Father, the 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 campaign trail is heating up. A number of people have announced, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side. And we all know the way this is supposed to get worked out is at the ballot box. But I have two possible alternative methods for picking our next president. Uh, and I want to know which one you would pick. Okay? Either an American gladiator style competition or a drinking contest. <laughs> Well, um, hmm. well, I, I, I think that uh, it's very important that the pr president have um, physical prowess. So I'm going to go with the American Gladiator contest. Although my choice is always based on uh, being a native Philadelphian. W when they come to Philly, how do they order their cheesesteak? Oh, I think that's yes. The most, that's yes. the most important um the most important thing to look for in a candidate. That is um, crucial. That is crucial. Yes. I'm just imagining, you know, because most of the people in the race at this point are fairly uh, elderly, 
I'm I'm imagining them trying the American Gladiator. <laughs> I'm just picturing Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton trying on, you know, trying to beat themselves with those like foam sticks that they used on American Gladiator. And uh, it would it really be much different than what they end up doing? <laughs> <laughs> It's a fair. It's a fair point. A lot of foolish posturing and yeah. absurdity. Yeah. That is the <laughs> that is the extent of our political commentary, friends. Um, you can write all of your angry mail to Father Matt. Okay. Next one. Power Girl or Squirrel Girl? Power Girl. Um, because I know you're a fan. <laughs> I well. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm like not both. super familiar with. Um, with Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable uh, Squirrel Girl, yeah, she's uh, she's she goes back a ways, but there's a there's an ongoing now. I think they're about four or five issues in where uh, I saw that. Yeah, she has all of the powers of a squirrel. If a squirrel were like human sized, which apparently means she's like the strongest person in the universe. Like somebody was telling yeah. me that 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 Squirrel Girl is actually one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. She's just not aware of it. I, yeah, I once saw a squirrel run up a tree with, like, a donut, like, that was almost the size of, of the squirrel itself. Yeah. So I mean, it was go. a pretty impressive feat. Well, one of the best things in the comic is that uh, she tries to go to college and, and have an ordinary college life and of course she has a giant squirrel tail she just basically just tucks the whole thing in her pants that's how yeah. she does it well, well that's what the angel used to do in the X-Men he used to tie the wings to his back mm -hmm. that works absolutely nobody's going to notice that you have a giant squirrel tail if you tuck it in your pants anyway <laughs> Mad Men or Mad Max oh Mad Men <laughs> Okay. I, I, I'm a big fan of the show. There you um, go. Mad Max was, was decent. Speaking but. of hopelessness, right? <laughs> no Don Draper, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> zombies or werewolves? Oh, zombies. <laughs> They're very yeah. in right now. And this is the very last one. And this may be the most important this or that that we've had yet. This one could really change everything. Okay? All right. Michael Sarah or Peanut Butter? Well, I don't know many things that are going to be Peanut Butter. I'm going to have to go with Peanut Butter. So you take Peanut Butter over beloved actor Michael Sarah. Yeah, what was he in again? <laughs> oh my goodness. He was in Arrested Development. He was George Michael in Arrested Development. Oh, oh he's George Michael. Yeah. Well, I mean, he gives peanut butter a good run for its money, but, I mean, it's peanut butter. Okay, peanut butter. I will say this. Um, my oldest son has a severe nut allergy, so regardless of how I would feel about this under other circumstances... The fact of the matter is, Michael Sarah would be welcome in my home, whereas Peanut Butter is not. So, there we yeah, are. Yeah, I forgot about the deadly... Yeah, a lot of kids have that now. Yeah, it's, and, it's it. you know, they, they don't have to put a Michael Sarah warning on packages. 
I'm just saying. Yeah. But, you know, the, the I don't know if you've tried the sunflower butter for your son. Yeah, but it's, it's good. It's yeah, good. It, it, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's an approximation. I mean, if I had to go without peanut butter, I, I'd try the sunflower butter. Yeah, and actually the Michael Sarah butter is really good. It's it's very, Oh, I haven't had that. It's yeah. understated. It seems younger than it actually is. Um huh. and it's, you know, it's just got that certain je ne sais quoi, you know. It's um <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, well, now that we've solved that that deep question, that is going to bring us to the end of yet another episode of God and Comics. We hope our, our illustrious comrade, Father Kyle Tomlin, is having fun on uh, his day off hunting uh, wolves in the Siberian wasteland. I believe that's what he said he was going to be doing today, so hope he's having a good time with that. You can check us out on godandcomics.com. You can download episodes of the show there. We also put up links on the site with each episode to various things that we've talked about. So if you want more information, that's a great place to go. You can also find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash godandcomics, or on Facebook. We also have a pretty active Facebook group that Father Matt runs for us. It's a wonderful thing. So check us out there as well. And we are available to subscribe to through iTunes. And while you're there, please uh, consider giving us a rating and a review. It helps other people to find the show. Our theme music is done by Father Paul Wheatley. Hopefully, hopefully you are banging your head to it right now. Until next time, I am Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we will see you later. 